Welcome to this episode of the Seed Seller Academy Podcast, sponsored by the Seed Seller Blueprint Live, the number one program on how to sell to farmers. We teach salespeople how to make selling easier than ever before. We show them how to take price, the need for programs, and the need for proof of performance out of the conversation and get the producers to not just buy, but follow their lead. As smart as today's farmers are, things are changing so fast. They don't know what they don't know. So not only do we make selling easier, we show sellers how to help farmers raise higher yields than they ever thought possible or could do on their own. This episode is also brought to you by the Sales Handling Objection Playbook. How do you respond when a farmer says you got beat by 20 bushels this year? Do you have any test plot data? It's too early to order. I don't know what I'm gonna do yet. Or my personal favorite, I can save $40,000 in seed costs by buying your competitor's seed cheaper. The Handling Sales Objection Playbook gives salespeople a step-by-step process, including word-for-word scripts on how to handle the most common comments and objections farmers give salespeople who call on them. Just go to the rcthomas.com playbook to purchase this exclusive training tool today. We don't teach the old way of doing things. We teach the 21st century way farmers buy. We're the only source for that kind of information. Welcome to our Seed Seller Academy podcast. This is a very special day for me. I met Dean Keevy back in 1983, and since that time, Dean has become probably one of the most respected people that I have in this business. Dean has quite a history with the ag business, uh, starting many, many years ago with a company that bought our company, Kelchin Seed Company, is where I got acquainted with Dean Keevy. I was the first employee at Kelchin. We grew very fast. We were a good, young company. And Dean came in with his organization uh, and bought the company and helped us grow even faster for the next number of years. And Dean will tell you about that story, I'm sure, as we go along today. But I can't tell you how excited I am today to have Dean in our podcast because Dean probably knows as much or more about anyone and any company in the business than, than anybody does. Dean is managing partner of Vernat Partners. Uh, Bernard Partners is a business uh, and acquisition company uh, in the ag, focuses on the ag business. They are worldwide, and I would consider the number one company in the business in that area, uh, absolutely. So today, I'd like to welcome Dean to our podcast. Thank you, Dean, for taking time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Rod. I've uh, I've really looked forward to this since you and I talked about this. I've thought about it a lot, mm-hmm. and have really looked forward to reconnecting with you and just having an opportunity to have a conversation with well, you. Well, it's great to have you. I'm sure many of our, our people who are watching this podcast will be know who you are and be, are eager to, to see what we have to talk about because there aren't too many people in this business don't know who Dean KV is. So that, that, would that be a fair statement? We've been at it a long while, <laughs> and uh, we, we've covered a, a lot of breadth in this industry. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think we know a lot of people, and hopefully yeah. they know us and, sure. uh, and have... Uh, positive feelings about who we are. Awesome. I'm sure they do. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in the business, uh, where you come from, a little bit about your background, and then how you got into ag. Sure. Happy to do that. Well, I will tell you right off the bat that I got here in a very roundabout way. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Ohio, went to college in Ohio, and my major was finance and accounting. Okay. And after graduation, I went to work for Arthur Anderson and Company in Columbus, Ohio. And so I did the typical audit, tax, consulting work that uh, public accounting firms do. You were a CPA? I was. Okay. And one of my clients that I had worked with over time was a, uh, it was a venture capital-backed ornamental horticulture company. The venture company was based in Boston, but this, uh, this ornamental horticulture company was located in Ohio. And so I was responsible for doing the audit on this company. And I guess ever since I was a kid, I always had uh, an interest in gardening and plants and trees and shrubs and so Mm -hmm. forth. So so this really connected to me. And so I really enjoyed working on this account. And after a couple of years, this venture group came to me and said, you know, we really want to grow this business faster and we want to do it through acquisition and we need somebody to help us do it. Okay. We need somebody who knows finance and accounting, who knows something about mergers and acquisitions. Would you be interested in leaving public accounting and joining us? And uh, after a lot of careful thought, I decided that was the right thing for me. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and I joined this company as its CFO. And 
I help them uh, work through some acquisitions, financing those acquisitions, and then integrating them into the company. And then after a few years, we were approached by a similar company to ours, but was this company was based on the West Coast. Our business was entirely east of the Mississippi okay. River. So we were approached by this California-based company who wanted to acquire us, and they eventually did that. Okay. They then offered me the opportunity to move to California and become the CFO for this combined company. Wow. And so uh, that was a big move Don't for us it. and our family, and yeah. we, we thought long and hard about that. Mm -hmm. But we decided to do it. And uh, so after being in California for a year doing this, I got a telephone call from the same Boston-based venture capital group. And they said, uh, we're thinking, and this would have been 1982. Okay. They said, we're thinking about starting a biotech-based seed company what would you think about joining us for that startup? And I said, well, it sounds exciting, but I don't know anything about biotechnology and I don't know anything about seed. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, don't worry about it. What we want you to do for us is what you did before in the or ornamental horticulture space. We need you to help us grow through acquisition. We need you to help us with financing and we need you to help us integrate these companies as we acquire them. And so, uh, again, I thought that was pretty exciting. Okay. So I agreed to do that. And uh, we then uh, traveled around the Midwest looking for the best place to, to start this new company. And this new company eventually became known as United AgriSeeds. And we decided to base it in Champaign, Illinois, mm -hmm. primarily because of the relationship that we were able to develop with the uh, agriculture portion of the University of Illinois okay. and the relationship that they were willing to uh, develop with us. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So you really weren't afraid to make some changes, were you? Well, at the time, I was pretty scared by it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was really uh, through your first introduction to the real serious part of the ag business was the acquisition side. Correct. Yeah. So what were you looking for in these, in these companies? What what made you decide to, to get, go after Kelch and Seed Company? Well, um, Kind of a side note, my first trip to Kelgen Seed Company was when I was still living in California, but I had already committed to make this uh, change over to, uh, to the startup venture. Okay. And uh, so I was asked to visit Kelgen Seed Company, and it was in January of 1983. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I flew from California to Minneapolis, and we made the drive out to Olivia. Sure seemed really cold that day after leaving California. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we visited Kelgen, met you, met mm -hmm. Keith Kelgen, met yep. the rest of the group, and just really impressed by what we saw there. Yeah. Uh, and I think we knew right away, Rod, that this was the right company for us if we could find a way to get together. Mm -hmm. but, but to answer your question, we were trying to develop a research platform at United AgriSeeds. Mm -hmm. And so what we needed were uh, successful operating companies who were profitable, who were growing, mm -hmm. who had the right people and the right experience because those are the companies who would generate the profits that would then pay for the research uh -huh. that United AgriSeeds was, yes. was going to employ. Yeah. So that was our strategy mm -hmm. is to buy uh, successful companies in the corn, soybean, and wheat sector uh, help them grow, give them the resources they needed, and also provide them with the additional research, particularly the biotech-based research that would complement the plant breeding that they were already doing. Gotcha. I found it very interesting that you, you uh, purchased Kelchin because there was nothing to show you except the people. We had no plant. We had an old rafter building we were renting as a warehouse. But Obviously, you recognize something in the people, as you indicated, is which was what made that company tick and what made it grow. Eventually, you helped us build a brand new facility, one of the nicest facilities yet today in the in the business. Um, but you recognize something in that group of people you're you're acquiring. Um, is that still what you look for today? Is it the people? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think uh, what we recognized in Kelgen in 1983 is what acquirers still look for today. That is strong brand recognition strong uh, reputation in the marketplace, uh, excellent quality of people, uh, 
reputation for performance by those people mm-hmm. uh, and and just uh, a platform that we saw as an opportunity to grow in the future yeah. and I think Kelgen delivered on every one of those yeah. uh, criteria well we had a lot of fun we wanted that background in, in research we wanted that base in technology which we didn't have without you guys so it was, it was a good stepping stone for us too so take us from that point to the Dow uh, chemical side and where, where it is today sure well, uh, as I indicated, uh, United Agri-Seeds was a venture capital-backed group of, uh, or was backed by a group of venture capital companies, 11 in total. Mm-hmm. And as, as was the case then and as is the case today, these venture capital companies will come in and say, we're in it for the long term. Okay. You know, we want to be here for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Well, that rarely is the case. They, they, they come in, they invest, they build. And then they tend to start getting a bit itchy uh-huh. to liquidate their holding. Okay. And so United Agri-Seeds really started in 1983, and really our first key acquisition was Kelgen. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that went really well, and then we made a series of acquisitions after that. And really just three or four years later, this venture group started to think, well, maybe this is the right time to start thinking about selling the company and liquidating our investment. Mm-hmm. Those of us in the company thought this was far too premature, Mm -hmm. that we had not yet accomplished everything we wanted to accomplish. The research was not yet mature. The companies were still growing. And uh, we thought, you know, more like a 10-year horizon Mm -hmm. would have been a much more uh, appropriate uh, time frame. Mm -hmm. But the venture capitalist uh, wanted us to uh, examine opportunities to sell. And so we did that, and that eventually resulted in United Agri-Seeds being acquired by Dow Chemical Company. Mm-hmm. And this was before Dow had merged their agricultural business with Eli Lilly mm-hmm. to form Dow Alanco. Mm-hmm. So they had a, an agriculture division, but it was all based upon crop protection. And they wanted a seed component to go with that. Gotcha. So they acquired... Uh, United Agri-Seeds in October of 1987 and then not long after that they formed this joint venture with uh, Lilly to form Dow Lanco. That operated for a couple of years and sort of came apart because they didn't share the same objectives. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then really the United Agri-Seeds family of companies became the platform upon which uh, Dow built their um, seed business. Mm-hmm. You know, eventually Dow formed Dow AgriSciences based in Indianapolis. And the whole basis of their seed business was yeah. United AgriSeeds and Kelgen and Lynx and That's the other awesome. companies. That's awesome. Well, I don't need to tell you <coughs> excuse me, that uh, when, those, when those changes are made, it's a pretty emotional part for everybody in the company, right? I mean, we're all going through, hey, the company's changed, it's being sold to Dow, whatever. Um, so what we did, we worked really hard to look at the long term and what the benefits of that whole process was. Every company goes through this, even today as I see these companies changing, merging, getting, uh, changing their structure. And what we work really hard with these people on is understanding what the, what the end game is. And what we found out, the end game was pretty positive for us. It was better than we could have done on our own, growing faster than we could have done on our own, and brought us things we could not have ever had by ourselves. So, you know, personally, I'd like to thank you for all that kind of stuff you did, even though I, as a, a younger guy, could not see the vision as well at that time. But I, it, people helped me explain the vision. I think today in this business, as and you can answer this better than I can, as we watch companies continue to go through this, the employee consternation it doesn't go away. It has to be addressed, right? Because we want those employees to stay. And we didn't lose a single employee through that, both of those transitions. We didn't lose anybody. In fact, we, we continue to hire more people. So as negative as it looked at on the outside initially, like, oh, our company's being sold, our baby's being, you know, pawned on the, on the market, that never happened because we, we uh, people, particularly you and, and Keith and some other people I worked with, helped me see the, 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 long, the end game of this, and it was positive. So I want to thank you for that process, uh, part two. So as we look at the, the industry today, Dean, um, <clears throat> do small companies who are not acquired, do smaller companies in this business still have opportunities? Are there, are there, the, the business going to be taken over by, uh, by the merging companies? How do you see the egg industry today as, as a whole? It's a good question, Rod, and you might imagine we get that question asked to us all the time. Mm-hmm. 
when we go to an ASTA meeting or an EPSA meeting or another meeting, companies want to know, what's my future? Yeah. What, what do independent seed companies have in store for them in the future? Yeah. It's, it's, it's been a question that's been asked for years and years and years. And my answer to that is as follows. Number one, independent seed companies today are just like Kelgium was in 1983. And that is they have a very close connection to their customers. Mm -hmm. They have a culture that the grower can relate to. Mm -hmm. And what companies who are looking to acquire businesses like Kelgium don't want to do is to come in and disturb that culture yeah. and upset that relationship between the company and the farmer. Yeah. And so I think today independent seed companies are absolutely the best at developing and nurturing that relationship with their customer base, much better than the big companies. Mm -hmm. It's a personal relationship yeah. that they've developed and that personal relationship goes far beyond the business relationship. You know, people know their customers' families, they know what the kids are doing, mm -hmm. they get involved in their activities, and you just can't do that on a big scale uh, as the market leaders yeah. uh, are today. Yeah, that's a great, great comment. Do you think they're being distracted, though, uh, from that relationship by the, the, sh the shiny technologies, these kind of things like this? Do you think, you think uh, these independent companies are, are not as confident in themselves as they should be because they, they see these bigger companies out there? <clears throat> Excuse me, big companies bring a lot to the market. Don't get me wrong. That's not the point. The point is, is do these independent companies uh, lose their confidence level when, when they see these things happen in the marketplace? I think there's a tendency for independent companies to always be looking over their shoulders. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is these companies are highly dependent on some of the bigger companies in the industry for technology, yeah. for genetics, uh, and for support in other areas. Yeah. And so at the same time that they are dependent on these bigger companies for some of their resources, they are also being uh, competed against by those same companies. Yeah. And so, as we know, Rod, pricing has always been a key issue in this industry for yeah. years and years. And yeah. one of the ways that the big companies try to retain or gain market share is through price competition. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easy for them to lower the price, much easier for them to lower the price to try to get a new customer than to try to duplicate that intimate customer relationship that the independent company gotcha. has. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, I think some things have changed, and in, in other ways, nothing has changed in the last 36 years <laughs> since true. we got to know each That's other. That's true. That, that customer relationship is still key to the yeah. relationship. Absolutely. Uh, but there's always the threat that that uh, independent seed company is going to lose that relationship based upon a price decision. Yeah. And so I think the future looks bright for independent seed companies, but I think there's always the risk that they're not going to have the resources long-term to compete against the big companies, particularly when it comes to a sustained, uh, a long-term sustained price uh, war, if yeah. you will. Yeah, they have to be prepared to go to war, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about Brent uh, Partners and what you guys do in the business, the scope of your business, the kind of services you do with companies today. Tell us about the company. Well, I'll, uh, uh, first of all, excuse me, how did it form? Okay, good question. I'll start from the beginning. Excellent. So after United Agri-Seeds was sold to Dow Chemical in 1987, I agreed to stay on and work as the president of the seed division of Dow Chemical for the next three years, which I did. Okay. But during that three-year period, it was pretty clear that Dow was uncertain what their long-term strategy was going to be and how committed they were going to be to the industry. And so I... I decided to take a different approach, and so I left at the end of my three-year contract period, and I got into the business brokerage business. And I did that because in my days in the ornamental horticulture business and in my days at uh, United Agri-Seeds, I had basically worked on mergers and acquisitions sure. activities. Mm -hmm. And so it's what I knew. It's what I liked. Uh, it's kind of what got me up in the morning. And mm -hmm. so I thought, why don't I try to make a career out of this? Yeah. So... I did that for a few years and decided that there was maybe a different, better way to do it. And so in 
1998, myself and three other individuals formed Verdant Partners. And uh, so that's 21 years ago. And we formed the, the, uh, the company to help companies uh, transact business. Uh, back then, there were about 300 companies selling seed corn in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's drastically uh, changed since then. Yes. But we felt there was a business opportunity to help companies execute transactions. And so we formed Verton Partners to to do transaction advisory service and a limited amount of consulting work, mm -hmm. mainly strategy type consulting work that might then ultimately lead to an M&A transaction, yeah. helping companies prepare for the day when they needed to do something different. When you started this business, did you see this coming? Did you did you see this vision coming as far as, you know, probably going to be the need for this? Because you actually led some of these companies into their future, whether it be a, a merger, a sellout, whatever it happened to be, that they needed to have a, a strategy to do that with. Uh, did you see that? You know, Rod, I, I would say we really did. Mm -hmm. At that time, 1998, biotechnology was still in its infancy. You know, the first biotech product was introduced in 1995. And so by 1998, we were still at the very beginning point of the adoption of biotechnology traits in mm -hmm. the seed industry. But we saw that being almost a revolutionary event for mm -hmm. agriculture, and it was, going to weigh, it was going to change the way farmers conducted their business. Mm -hmm. And so we felt that ultimately that was going to give great opportunities to independent seed companies who were at a point in their life where they wanted to or needed to sell their business. Mm -hmm. We felt that, that, the, uh, that, that the introduction of technology would ultimately force a consolidation of the industry, yeah. which as we now look back on, yeah. we know did happen. Mm -hmm. And I think I always akin it to many farmers who have their own businesses don't have uh, legacy plans, don't have transition plans in their business. And I think many of those seed companies were started by farmers or started by independents who probably didn't have that plan either. So you came along and helped with a transition plan for their business, whatever direction it would take, right? Correct. Could be an acquisition, could be uh, a merger, could be a, a buyout or sellout, right? So it helped them with that process, yeah, absolutely. You know, you talked about the technology side of the business as being a, a, a driving force in some of these changes. When you look inside these companies though and put your sales cap on for a second, um, what do you see that these companies were doing or, or hadn't been doing enough of that would, would put them in that merger acquisition mentality? What, what are they missing today or what have they been missing to put them there? Sales? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know. <laughs> now, I, I think really two things, Rod. Uh, first of all, I think companies tended to overlook the need for sound accounting and financial reporting. Uh, As small family owned and operated businesses Oftentimes, they didn't see the need for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, it was how much cash do we have in the bank uh -huh. every day. Yep. And if we had more cash tomorrow than we had today, we're, we're doing fine. fine. Mm -hmm. But when it comes time to do something different, whether it be to go to the bank and get a loan for operating capital or to get a loan to expand a plant facility or a decision to sell a company, if they don't have good, sound financial reporting systems, it puts them at a severe disadvantage. Mm -hmm. A buyer can't evaluate their business unless they can get their arms around the company's yeah. historical financial performance. Perfect. I'd say that's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two is companies would tend not to uh, create a succession plan for employees. And a lot of our clients over the years would be family members who had maybe gotten to be our age today, Rod, and their children had decided not to come into the business for whatever reason, but they hadn't made other plans for succession, either in ownership or in management. Mm -hmm. And so when companies would come in and look at buying that company, they'd say, well, you know, Rod, what happens when you retire? Yeah. Who's going to come and take your place? Sure. If there's no good answer to that, it really hurts the saleability of the company and the value of the company. Mm -hmm. And so I think those are probably the two biggest drivers. Huge. When you go back to the financial side, I see this a lot because we talked about the pricing issue. People are, are 
you know, and the price competition's rampant out there, obviously, for a number of reasons. The farmer is the markets. He, you know, he thinks that <clears throat> he's got to save some money to stay in business, that kind of thing. We understand that. But you may or may not agree with this, but one of the things I tell my clients is that I've made one uh, statement in my 25 years as R.C. Thomas that has never been wrong. Uh, this is probably the only thing I've ever said that's never been wrong <laughs> in my, you know, that I've ever done. And that is, if you have a sales problem, raise your price. If you have a, f a financial issue, you don't have money, raise your price. And what we found is the sales always go up because we have to sell value, and then it forces us to identify where that value is. It always comes back to our people. It's not in our, our product. Everybody has a good product, pretty much. Product parity is high. It's not our facilities or our technology. It's in the people who are delivering that value, right? So it forces them to rethink that. As they rethink their financials, they rethink that what is the value they're bringing uh, to, the per to the people. Um, so would you agree that most companies who are looking this direction uh, for you know, a, a transition or, or growing their business in some way are afraid to raise price? I mean, this, this is what I find. I find that the price uh, mentality in the marketplace is so strong that it keeps them from doing what they need to do. It happens every day. For example, we used to have 5,000 cooperatives. Right now we have 500. And partly is because farmers who run the board, on the boards of cooperatives, are afraid to raise price. This has been their common thing. They don't make money, right? So do you think that mentality still exists, or do you think that independents can overcome that with, uh, with, by, by revaluing their employees and those kind of things? Well, first off, I would say I totally agree with your premise, mm -hmm. and I totally agree with the advice you've given your clients over the years. Mm -hmm. I think there's always a natural tendency to say if my competitors are reducing price, I've got to reduce price mm -hmm. and match them. Yeah. But by doing that, you've really offset that advantage you've created for yourself in developing this relationship mm -hmm. and this culture that we talked about earlier. Yeah. You're cheapening your company, mm -hmm. and you're cheapening the value of your company yes. by doing that. Yeah. So I think um, these independent companies who created this really close working relationship with their customer base uh, there's a lot of value placed on that. It's intangible, but it's still uh, an important value creator for a company. And so if they start reducing prices, I think it tends to offset that uh, benefit that they've created over decades and decades mm -hmm. of, of history in the industry. Well, that first factor you mentioned to me about having financial control, financial awareness, financial awareness of your business just hit me right between the eyes because um, the statement we always give to our clients is, how can you have the same price as your competitor if your costs aren't the same? And it, it mm -hmm. sounds so basic, doesn't it? But it's something that uh, you forget about your cost and you're going to try to match somebody whose costs are way lower than yours on a per unit basis. So what you just said just rings so well with me and every, everybody who's going to be listening to this, this podcast or watching this podcast because uh, most people watch this podcast, probably 100% of them are in the seed business or ag business, let's say ag business. And a lot of these people are out selling to farmers every day, too. They're, they're, they're listening to this mm -hmm. message. And this message, at some level, may be a higher level than they think that they have to think at. But what you're delivering today is at, at the level where everybody needs to be thinking. How do, how, do we, how do we keep our company protected from the marketplace? And then where does that company be going in the future? It's, it's outstanding. I think the owners and managers of smaller independent seed companies lose sight of one really important fact, and that is it's impossible for them to compete on on price long term. Yes. The big market leading companies, they have the financial resources to essentially put you out of business That's true. if they choose to That's do true. it. So you can't compete on price, you have to compete on value. Yes. And the value is in that relationship and the quality and performance of the products that yeah. you're providing to your customers. Yeah. That's what the independents have always had to concentrate on, and that hasn't changed, and I don't think it will change in you the future. You need to give a sales seminar, buddy. That's really good. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Burton Partners and how you deal with your clients. What kind of relationships uh, come to your mind when you deal with your clients? I mean, how do you view uh, getting a client to see your values and, and come on board with you? What kind of message did you deliver to them? Well, I think Maybe first and foremost, Rod, it's it's our background. Mm -hmm. Everyone in our company has has had a background 
in agriculture and most of us in the seed industry. So if we're working in the seed industry segment of our business, I think people recognize that we've sort of been there and done that. We've walked in their shoes and we know what they're going through. And so not unlike Kelgen Seed Company in 1983, what we want to do is create a relationship and a friendship with those Mm -hmm. companies. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not often that we meet somebody for the first time and they ask us to help them with something in their company, whether it be financing or selling. It's usually the result of a, some cases, a 21-year relationship gotcha. that we've created with that company. We'll, we'll travel out and meet with that company. We'll visit their location. We'll tour the seed plant. Mm-hmm. We'll climb up in the tower. Yeah. Uh, we'll meet with them at Asta. We'll meet with them at Ipsa. And, and we, we just get to be friends with yeah. them. And our hope is that someday when they need help, they'll call us up and say, hey, you know, it's time. Can you help us do something? Yeah, that's excellent. So we know we're in a world market, right? This is a world market where farmers are competing against against the world, uh, all farmers across the world. We we do work and have done work over the years in South America and and, and, uh, different places. You have locations all over the world. How how do those companies operate? How do they think? How do do the, the growers think? in your mind, differently or any differently or the same as what's happening compared to in the U.S.? You mentioned South America. I think that's the perfect example. Obviously, the two biggest agricultural markets in South America are Brazil and Argentina. Uh, Huge markets, huge amount of arable land in those two countries. Mm -hmm. But those two countries are also greatly challenged both politically and economically. If they had the same stable political and and economic structure there that we have in the U.S., they would be formidable competitors. But they don't. Mm -hmm. They are regularly going through both political and economic upheavals. Argentina just went through another election last weekend. They're going to go through another massive change again. And so farmers there are constantly struggling for existence. They just do not have the resources to be able to compete with U.S. farmers on a long-term basis. Mm -hmm. So they're going to keep producing corn and soybeans. They're going to be competitors on the the world market. And at least temporarily, uh, as we deal with these embargoes, uh, and not so much embargoes, but, uh, you know, the the issues we have with China today, it benefits company or uh, countries like Brazil and Argentina. Sure. But long term, I think there's just there's nobody like the American farmer. Yeah, yeah. And he's got so many tools to do it with. That uh, you know these companies are coming out with so many fantastic tools to help him grow his business. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the farmers in Argentina and Brazil, they have access to some of the same genetics and traits that we have in the U.S., but they can't use them because mm-hmm. either they can't afford to pay for, you know, a, a smart stack uh, corn yeah. hybrid, or, or they, uh, they simply aren't offered that opportunity because of the lack of intellectual property protection yeah. in those countries. Yeah, absolutely. So they they do a lot with what they have, but they simply do not have all the resources that American farmer has. Yeah, all the training we've done in South America, quite a bit, mostly in Argentina, uh, with various companies. Uh, most of them are, are large retail organizations is it's almost always around price because you know people down prices is, is is what how these guys survive pretty much even right. the companies right <clears throat> but when we, we come down there uh and talk about some other things their 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 ears are wide open they, they want to know okay how can i produce more which we focus on pretty much increasing production side of the business with these with these folks but you're so right and it, it's it's really a different culture it's a different uh, political environment which is you know, at some point in time, I was told down there by one of my clients that um, they, these farmers set yield goals, and anything they hit over that yield goal is not theirs. So it's hard to be incentivized by hitting a yield exactly. goal. <laughs> Let's put your sales hat on for a minute. Uh, you know, you may not consider yourself uh, uh, in the sales side, but you certainly are. I mean, you, you've done an amazing job over the years of working with clients and getting them to, to, to know you and like you. <clears throat> When you look at the growing your business or, or moving forward or looking at the industry, what do you like? What, when you, what do you see that you like about the industry today? I like the people. Mm-hmm. I like the people. Uh, it, it's just a group of really likable, genuine 
people who have high ethics, mm -hmm. high regard for what they do, high regard for the markets they serve, and the people who represent them uh, as customers. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's number one. I yeah. just like the people. Yeah. Well, don't you like? That's a that's a tougher <laughs> question. Um, I suppose the the impact that politics has on agriculture, and it's not not just this administration, mm -hmm. but um, administrations of past probably have not given the attention to agriculture mm -hmm. that it deserves. Yeah. I mean, agriculture is the mainstay of, of the world. Yeah. I mean, we have to feed 10 billion people by 2050. Yeah. And to do that, governments all over the world are going to have to make agriculture a high priority, mm -hmm. much higher priority than they have in the past. Yeah. And, you know, if we're going to be playing games with agriculture and not giving them the support that's needed, uh, it's going to be really difficult to mm -hmm. reach those objectives yeah. in 2050. Good point. So that's probably one of the more frustrating parts that we deal yeah, with. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's, it's out of your control, basically. It right? is. So one of the things that, that I don't like very well uh, and you can certainly chime in on this, is that most companies, and I would, I would uh, be as bold as to say 95% of the companies don't control their own businesses. They don't run their businesses. The farmer runs their business. And we look at that because the farmer decides when he wants to buy, decide what he wants to buy by looking at his yield monitor for the year, depending on what the year, regardless of what the year was, <clears throat> decide how much he wants to pay. So in those three areas, he, he's controlling their time, He's controlling their inventories, controlling their, their profits. So what we work on really hard with growers is, with companies, is to get the grower to change his thinking to get back on our schedule. As you know, in the seed business, we produce our seed a year in advance. And if the farmer doesn't order until six to nine months after that production plan was put into play, we've got inventory issues. We've got balance issues, all the kind of things that you're very familiar with. Because as a financial guy, you know about inventories. <laughs> Um, so we get him more on our schedule. We take that yield monitor away from him and look at the thousand variables that affect his performance and decide, you know what, you can't decide on last year what to plant next year because it's, it's in a living organism, right? So we change his thinking on how he chooses portfolios of products. As a financial guy, if you have a stock portfolio, which I'm sure you do, you don't have one stock in it, right? Uh, I think years ago you, you, you taught me that. I mean, I heard your conversations how you guys were thinking about Apple, when they were first come out, different things you guys were looking at, a balanced portfolio, a products he puts on himself on his farm to cover himself, and then deciding that uh, you know what, the value is in the consulting I get, not in the uh, the price. So and then take back that control from the farmer. The farmer is better off, and the company has control of their business. Would you agree that many of these companies don't run their businesses? Is that too blatant? No, I, I totally agree with what you've just said, but I also think there's another factor to that. And what you've just described is the relationship between the seed company and their customer. Mm -hmm. I think the other side of that equation is the relationship between the seed company and those companies who supply them uh, with technology mm -hmm. and other inputs. Mm -hmm. uh, in that respect, the seed company doesn't control a lot of their input costs. True. And so this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. If they try to compete on price, they're competing on price, yet they're not controlling their own cost. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to get squeezed from both ends. They're getting squeezed from their customer side expecting a better price, and they're getting squeezed from the input side mm -hmm. because those costs tend to keep going up even though they, those companies who are providing those inputs may be reducing the cost sure. uh, when they compete against the independent seed yeah. company in the marketplace. Great point. So when you look at all these uh, technologies, you've got a great background in, te in technology and, and genetics, those kind of things by bringing that to the market. What's your view on uh, the whole non-GMO organic scene? Uh, is that, if you see that being, in, you know, semi-popular. I, I think I certainly have my opinions on <clears throat> the application of all that and, and feeding the world, but is the industry itself uh, looking for other, other options besides technology? Well, a few minutes ago you asked me a question about what's wrong or what, what bothers me. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is the number <laughs> one thing. <Okay. laughs> this whole concept of GMOs and resistance GMOs is something that really wrangles me. Mm -hmm. You know, 
10, 15 years ago, when we would go to a seed meeting, we would have discussions about when are the European companies going to see the light and stop resisting GMO technology. And we thought it was just a matter of time before they had to start adopting this technology so that their farmers can compete on the world stage with American farmers. Sure. Well, as we know, Rod, what's happened is just the opposite. Yeah. You know, they have not softened their stance on GMO technology, and instead, um, the younger, uninformed population of the U.S. is starting to become very anti-GMO. Mm-hmm. They don't know what a GMO is, but but they don't like them. <laughs> they don't like them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I always say to my friends when we're out to dinner, I'm blaming this on the millennials. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's these kids who yeah. live in Chicago, and they, yeah. they want to go buy organics. Yeah. They don't want GMO. They don't have a clue no, what it is, it is yeah. but they think it's bad for them. Yeah. So I think that's a real problem for our industry because, you know, I think the ship has sailed on GMO technology. It's never going to be adopted in the marketplace. It's never going to be accepted as uh, as an appropriate technology for the production of ultimately food products that we as Americans or, you know, yeah. we as pop, uh, people of the world population are going to, to uh, consume. And and I think the, the, uh, the really disappointing thing about that is we have this new technology, gene editing technology, CRISPR-Cas9 and other uh, uh, elements of gene editing that's not GMO, Mm -hmm. but those who are opposed to GMO are painting gene editing as if it were a GMO or transgenic technology. Mm -hmm. So I think gene editing can have a tremendous benefit in the production of, ultimately in the production of food that will enable us to feed 10 billion people yes. uh, in, in 2050. But if, if it's going to be resisted just as GMO technology has been resisted, then you know we're gonna have the same obstacles with it yeah. down the road that we've always had with GMOs. Yes. So why are we so bad at getting that message out? Uh, one of my clients <clears throat> uh, I've been working with for about five years had a really great sales year a year ago, <clears throat> and he took all of his people to Hawaii on a trip. And they had a great time. They were at Maui, where we used to live on Maui, and they come back, and we're doing a session with with the team, part of the team, and said, how, how was your trip to Maui? Great, loved it, but we had one problem. What was that? Well, one night we were all out, as a whole group, having dinner at a nice restaurant, and we're all standing around in the bar having a, having a drink, and one of our guys is wearing a shirt with a little ear of corn on it. And uh, I said, oh, and the guy says, what is that? And the the, the the name Monsanto came up, <laughs> and it's like it's like you you threw a bomb in the place. You know, the, this guy who was from Maui or Hawaii, Hawaii, uh, just went off on on you know these big bad companies and blah blah blah. And my client, ninety nine point nine percent of their sales is concerns GMOs, right? So I said to, to the group, I said, "Well, what'd you tell them?" We didn't know what to say. What? You mean you you all your sales pretty much are in GMO products? which are amazing technology, amazing, for, done so many good things for the farmers over these years, uh, for everybody. And you didn't know what to say? No, we didn't know what to say. I thought, that's really, that's really sad. So I went home and developed a whole story and brought it back to them in a whole book form on, on here's what you say, because we've all been attacked at some point in time on an airplane or whatever about these concepts, and uh, it should be a no-brainer. It, but we haven't done a very good job with that. Why is that? I think one main reason, in spite of the fact that we've had industry uh, organizations as well as individual companies spending lots of money to get the word out, I think the, the audience that they're delivering that message to aren't listening to those people. They don't trust those people. They don't trust industry organizations who are serving agriculture to give them the message that they think is the real objective uh, message, the truth, if you will. Mm -hmm. But here's what I think the real issue is. As I said before, I think GMO technology has been revolutionary for the farmer. It has radically changed the way they farm. It's made them more efficient. It's made them more economically viable. And I would argue it's made them much more much better stewards of the land. Absolutely. They are the true environmentalists. Yeah. But 
the consumer doesn't recognize any of that because the consumer doesn't see any value to them of GMO technology. Gotcha. To me, one of the biggest mistakes that was ever made in the history of our industry was a company in California created a product called the Flavor Saver Tomato. <laughs> okay. The Flavor Saver Tomato was a GMO product, and the, the point of Flavor Saver Tomato was long shelf life. And I actually did some work for this company, and I had the opportunity to, uh, to experience firsthand the benefits of the technology that went into the Flavor Saver Tomato. Here's an example. This company had a distribution uh, facility in Chicago, and it was small scale. It was still in the test market stage. But I went up to Chicago, did some work up there, and they said, well, let's go out to our processing center and look at our operation. Fantastic operation. And at the end of that tour, they gave me a basket of tomatoes, flavor saver tomatoes, and they said, take these home. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to go on vacation as soon as I get home. I'm going to be gone for two weeks. Mm -hmm. They said, perfect. It's a great <laughs> test. So I took that basket of tomatoes home, put them on my kitchen counter, and went on vacation for two weeks. Came back, and we ate every one of those tomatoes, and they were absolutely perfect. Wow. So the technology worked. It was something that we could give to the consumer mm -hmm. that the consumer could relate to. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, this company who had developed this technology was acquired by Monsanto. Monsanto at that time owned a tomato company in Florida. Okay. And so Flavor Saver, in a way, was competing against this fresh market tomato mm -hmm. uh, company in Florida, and Monsanto killed the technology. Wow. They killed Flavor Saver mm -hmm. as a brand and mm -hmm. as a product. Mm -hmm. I think had Monsanto embraced Flavor Saver and and, uh, you know, uh, greatly expanded its uh, market penetration, mm -hmm. I argue we wouldn't be having the same resistance to GMOs today that, that we are That's having. That's a great story. Or integrated it into that fresh market. Absolutely. They could have used it. There's right? an, they were complementary, not yeah, competitive. absolutely. That's a great story. Yeah, I, I think there had to be a root cause someplace there at a major, major higher level that uh, because uh, – you know, obviously, I'm a fan of those kind of things. I think technology always, almost always wins at the end. But yes. uh, yeah, it's been a major uh, obstacle for everyone. Uh, but the farmer again loves it. It's been great for him, as you said, in many, in many, many ways. Say it changed his entire business. I'm going to shift gears just a little bit on you. Uh, you uh, indicated off before we got started in the podcast that uh, you really enjoy the business. You don't plan on leaving the business at all. But I think that's a great great concept I'm, I'm in the same frame of mind with my business but um, you bring so much to, to the business and one of the th comments I made to you was uh, it is kind of uh, sad to see someone of your experience level leave because we, we took all that knowledge and experience with us when you bring new people in how do you give them that blood transfusion you know Keith Kelchin always said that you know if we could just bring a new person in lay them down on the table Hook him up, give him a blood calcium blood transfusion. We'd be in really good shape. That's kind of how we talked, right? Uh, how do you teach your new people? You've got a new intern I met today, a sharp young guy. Uh, people, I'm very impressed by all your people. How do you get them integrated into the business and kind of start getting them to feel uh, some of the know some of the things you know? Or how do you do this? Great question, Ron. Well, we're sitting here in downtown Champaign, Illinois. Mm -hmm. We're literally a mile from the campus of the University of Illinois. And so we have, early on in our company's history, we developed a strategy of hiring uh, interns out of the School of Agriculture at the University of Illinois. Okay. So these interns will typically come in, work for us for two years, usually their junior, their senior year, and then assuming we have a role for them in our company then we hire that person full-time uh -huh. in fact you met one of our interns yes. this morning yeah. and we expect him to become a full-time employee that's awesome at the end of his uh, senior season so mm -hmm. that's next year mm -hmm. and so by working for two years as an intern they they get to know the business from the inside out mm -hmm. and then even during their internship but particularly then when they become full-time employees we immediately start to take them with us on, 
on road trips to visit companies, to attend conferences, to really understand who the people of this industry are. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially, they work, uh, sorry, they walk in our footsteps, mm -hmm. and they do what I do, or they do what my mm -hmm. other partner does, yeah. um, so they get a feel for how we handle uh, uh, client relationships, how we, uh, how, how we handle people, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not unlike Kelgen back in the early 80s. We want them to understand the culture of our company mm -hmm. and how they fit into that culture. Yeah. We want them to continue to express the values of our company and our culture through their relationships with people. Yeah. Well, you have a hiring system, don't you? A we system do. to hire people and train these people. So many clients, you wouldn't, maybe you already know this, don't have that. So many people have, well, I need somebody. We need somebody today. We better go look for somebody. And we'll bring them on board, uh, spend a week or two with them, and out they go. Um, it's, it's amazing how many people in this business today don't have a, uh, a hiring strategy or a new hire system to bring people in like that. So the intern system for you, uh, what do you like about that intern concept? Uh, do you look for people in ag. Is it important today that they have a background in ag? It's not essential, but we think it's really important. Okay. We like the fact that, in fact, everyone we've hired has come to us after having grown up on a farm. Okay. If it's in their blood, so mm -hmm. to speak, number one, they have an interest in the area. Mm -hmm. Number two, they have some concept of what the culture of agriculture is all mm -hmm. about. You can't really teach that. Right. You, you have to experience yeah. it. So we think that's really important to us in our business that the person that we're looking to hire has some background in agriculture, even if it's just growing up on a farm, Sure. Uh, not really managing it, but working on the farm as a child. Yeah, yeah. But here's what you did. You hybridized us. This, this business, uh, at some point in time, always needs to be hybridized, right? And that's what I always say to, to sell people, for example, I work with is, okay, this guy, he's, he grew up on a farm, but doesn't know, uh, his, far, his parents are small farmers or whatever. But I said, that's okay, is he, is he the right person? Does he have the right skills you want? And maybe we can teach him other things he needs to know, but will he hybridize us and getting us to think bigger? And I think what you brought to the industry and certainly brought to Kelchin was this hybridization process where, no, we can think bigger than we are right now. We can think differently, more uh, maybe uh, financially than we were before, although Keith was a great financial person. He, he, he knew mm -hmm. how to add and subtract pretty well. Um, but uh, I think you brought this in and recognize that this ag background is important, not essential, but is very important, is a, is a big deal. I think it's important. But I don't think it's always uh, like you said, essential if you got that right person there who can build relationships, who can, who's willing to learn, right? Willing to listen, mm -hmm. those kind of things. So, so where do you see this business going? I mean, where do you see the industry going, Dean? I mean, you've just seen this thing, both of us have seen this thing change for the last, uh, you know, 47 years probably. Um, what are you thinking about with the industry today? Well, Rod, uh, starting in 2004, we've seen rapid consolidation in the seed industry. Before that, the seed industry was really kind of an outlier in the sense that it didn't look like most American industries look. You know, uh, most American industries, think about the automobile industry, mm -hmm. for example. They have two or three market leaders. Then you have a second tier of companies and then after that, you may have a few specialty companies. Okay. Uh, the seed industry never looked like that before today, mm -hmm. before 2005, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, we had in, let's just take 1983, the year that we, we got to know each other. Yeah. We had one significant market leader, which was Pioneer, yep. and then a distant second was DeKalb. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you had a whole layer of independent companies that were good-sized companies but nowhere near the size of either a DeKalb yeah. or a Pioneer. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I always thought would happen would was that technology would eventually change the structure and the nature of the industry. And, and I think that has proven to be true. Mm -hmm. So what do we have now? We have essentially four major players 
in the seed industry worldwide. Again, not unlike the automobile industry. Then you have a second tier of companies that are largely the largest of the independent companies. And then below that, you have a large, still a relatively large number of small to medium independent companies. Mm -hmm. I think that will stay that way for the foreseeable future. I don't see a lot more consolidation that's going to take place. I think that has largely already happened. Okay. And so I think there's going to be a role for all of those companies to play in our industry going forward, assuming that those big companies today who control the technology and the genetics continue to make that technology and genetics available to the rest of the industry. If that happens, I think we'll continue to see competition, and I think we'll continue to see an industry structure that looks much as it does right now. Today. Okay. Very good. How are we going to feed 10 billion people in 2050? Okay. I think that's a major challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the technology is, is developing that will allow us to achieve that result, but we keep running into obstacles in terms of the ability to use that technology for the benefit of human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take Africa. You know, Africa is probably the poorest continent in the world. Mm-hmm. They have people who are mal- malnourished. They, they don't have access to enough food or the right food. But yet, they have GMO restrictions in much of Africa. Does that make sense? No. So we've got to find a way to solve this conception, or this perception, I should say, that uh, technology is bad for people and it's bad for the health of people. You know what? Starving people in Africa is the worst of all worlds. Yes. And we can't be concerned about GMO technology if we don't have enough food to feed people yeah. and to uh, you know, save them from starvation. Absolutely. That's a great point. Absolutely. We, we have the technology to do it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's just politics holding us back. Just, be, just have to be able to use <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. It's so sad, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you you uh, see a lot of changes in this industry, obviously. What do you think of robotics? That's a little cr- crazy question off the cuff here, but uh, <clears throat> what, do you th- what do you think about that? Well, I think it's, I think it's technology that... Uh, It's here, it's now, it's being used, Mm -hmm. but it's being used in a different way. Mm -hmm. It's being used in laboratories. To some extent, it's being used in food production. You know, we obviously don't see it being used on the farm very much today. Mm -hmm. But um, I think one of the major um, challenges that businesses have today is being able to hire train and retain good quality employees. So it's forcing companies to move toward some sort of mechanization, including robotics. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if you've if you visited some of these large-scale laboratories where research takes place, there's very few people in those labs. It's all being done by robotics. Mm-hmm. It, they can do it faster, quicker, or more efficient. And it also solves the problem of, the, of, of a lack of qualified employees to handle those same skills. Excellent point, because farmers are kind of eager for this stuff. Autonomy on tractors right now, there's, I know a farmer who, all, who put, I believe, 2,000 acres of crop in with a, with a never rode a tractor. Um, tractor did it unbelievable, by itself. Yeah. So, you know, that stuff's going to be adopted. So on that light, I want to ask you another question about uh, change. You know, we think the ag industry has changed a lot, and it has continues to change fast. But as you look at it, um, we're behind a lot of the societal changes that have taken place. Companies have gone through these changes long before we did, right? You know, when big companies like Walmart came in and you know, the big box store mentality came up with, uh, hey, we got everything, but we have it cheaper. Um, <clears throat> we have all these technology changes coming in. Uh, do you think we're still behind or are we catching up in the egg business? I think we're a generation behind catching up. <laughs> Yeah. And the reason I say that is the, I think the average American farmer is 68 years old. That farmer has done uh, the same thing the same way for his entire career. Yep. He's a pretty conservative individual. Yep. And so he or she has been slow to uh, 
adapt new technology. Mm -hmm. You know, the there's a big buzzword in the industry now, ag tech. Used to be called big data. Yep. Uh, it's a big deal. Yep. Uh, but that 68-year-old farmer probably isn't going to adopt a lot of the technology that is available to him through this ag tech mm -hmm. uh, area. But I bet his son or daughter will. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are currently ordering most of their stuff through Amazon. It's mm -hmm. being delivered to their home the next day. Yep. So I think ag tech is a really important part of the future of agriculture, but I think it probably got here before its time, mm -hmm. and I think the next generation of farmers will readily uh, adopt and utilize it to their yeah. advantage. Yeah. I, no truer words were better spoken because uh, when we go on these farms today, we do meet that 68-year-old guy along with his son or, his, or people in the operation who are going to be taking over or will be taking over the operations because these operations are getting bigger real quick. The, we work heavily in the dairy industry right now on these mega dairies. Uh, we lost 590 dairies last year in, in Wisconsin alone, 17,000 in the last 10 years. <clears throat> so that they're not growing a few cows, they're, they're jumping by 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, multiple thousand cows. And people in those operations are the people you're talking about, the younger people who have the automatic outmilkers, the, the technology they're adapting. And you see this happening. It's a whole mentality change. But what I also see, though, is that I'm not sure the companies who supply those things have adapted as fast as many farmers have. Farmers looking for this stuff. If you're delivering the technology, that's one thing. If you're asked to be involved in it because you're a supplier, um, I'm not sure we've we've changed our our thinking at the at the customer level as fast as we needed to change, and that's where I see the challenge is. Are co people coming out of college? They're they're probably into that game a little bit, but people who have been selling for very long don't always have that same mentality that you're talking about with the younger people. No, I think that's exactly right, Rod. And I think there's also been a transition in the way this technology's been marketed to the farmers. It's true. When it first came. Uh, on the market, it was uh, maybe at a time when corn was about seven dollars mm -hmm. an acre, and so the idea was we're going to sell you this technology and the benefits of that technology for ten dollars an yep. acre. Yep. Well, that that may have seemed a reasonable thing to do mm -hmm. when corn's seven dollars. Yeah. But when corn's three dollars, <laughs> it doesn't work quite so exactly. well. Exactly. And so the, the the companies who have that technology and and are marketing it to the farmer have had to change course and say okay now this is going to be not a product we're going to sell you it's going to be a product that we're going to provide you with mm -hmm. that will help us sell other products gotcha. to you yep. and mm -hmm. so i think as long as commodity prices remain where they are today or close to where they are today uh, it, it will slow the adoption of ag tech simply because it is seen as more of a marketing tool as opposed to something that's absolutely necessary for a farmer to adopt. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, Dean, uh, we, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you being part of our podcast today. Are there anything else you'd like to, to say to our listeners or, and our people who are viewing this podcast uh, before we close it up? Well, maybe I'd just wrap up several things we've talked about with one comment, and that is, you know, when 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 I first met uh, the Kelgen Seed Company crew back in 1983, <laughs> the one thing that I think Keith Kelgen recognized when he built that company was he couldn't do it all himself. He didn't have all the skill sets necessary to operate a successful company. And so he had the foresight to go out and hire really good people. Mm -hmm. You were the first hire he made. Mm -hmm. He also hired Larry Fuyan, yep. who was an excellent uh, uh, controller of yes. that company. And so Keith put the right people in place from day one, and as a result of that, he built a really solid company that made it attractive to us as an acquisition mm -hmm. opportunity and made it uh, essentially a, a successful company because mm -hmm. of the way he did it. Yeah. So I think that is a terrific blueprint for how uh, you know, small to medium-sized independent companies need to think about operating today. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's very well said. And you have the, uh, the great observation window for that in all the industry and all the companies you work with and how that works. And, and probably what they need to have most is upgrading their people at some level. 
So what excites me so much about this podcast today, Dean, and working with you is this is something totally different than a lot of the people who have been watching. Now, a lot of our clients, a lot of people, your clients will be seeing this podcast, but also a lot of salespeople will be watching it too. And this is something that they need to, need to hear about the industry, need to, to understand at a much higher level than just, you know, going out and trying to get the guy's business. This is a much bigger, bigger deal. It's, it's where we've been working to take their thinking uh, for, for a long time because it's easy to be in your business, not easy to always be working on your business, as you know. So I can't thank you enough for taking time today to raise the boats, raise our level of thinking, uh, help us with our view of the marketplace. To me, it continues to be a fun place to work. Uh, there's no more uh, forgivable people, people who deal with uncontrollables than something in the ag business. We've always said seed is the hardest thing in the world to sell because it's a living organism, mm-hmm. and you can't always control its performance, and it's 100% of a farmer's income. That's a pretty serious sale and a pretty serious yeah. buy for him. And I think you've done an amazing job of throughout your career of helping companies guide that message to make sure they stay in business or, or see their their future uh, so they can they can have livelihoods too well, so thank you Rob. thank That's you for very, that very kind uh, comment and it's great to reconnect with you and kind of yeah. share some history together it's and uh, and i really appreciate the opportunity thank you so much for your time thank you you bet